Thanks, Terry. Hey, guys. How's everybody doing? Yeah? Feeling good? I am uh, not feeling great. Uh, something happened on, what was it? Oh, right about when the Dodgers lost game seven, I got sick. <laughs> I think I have the Dodger blues, if you will. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely feeling, feeling that. But uh, very excited to be with you guys tonight. Um, hopefully you can understand me through my accent. I know you guys are probably used to Terry's speaking, but... <laughs> Um, yeah. So we have close connections to this church as well. Terry and Linda have been a part of our life for the last uh, five years. We, uh, Kristen and I, started Anthem Church and had, uh, my dad's a pastor and, and he's been a mentor to me for a long time. And we had some people encourage us to find mentors that were not family, just somebody outside that could kind of speak into us in our ministry. And uh, through a mutual friend, we found Chris Vinand and uh, asked Chris and Merrill if they would mentor my wife and I. And uh, that opened up a whole new world of relationships to us, including Terry and Linda, which has been just such a joy. And now they are, um, they're just, they're deep friends to us. Uh, we, we go to them for counsel. We look to them as, uh, as friends, as partners in ministry. And uh, you guys have a very dear place in our heart, even though this is, uh, you know, we have not spent a lot of time together. Uh, also, if you know Don and Bree Thompson, I don't know if any of you know Don and Bree. Don is Kristen's brother, and uh, so we have. Uh, we were very excited when they landed here, and then, like you, some of you, very disappointed when they moved to Atlanta. So uh, that is uh, that's our connection here. So I'm excited to be with you guys tonight. Uh, I am talking about money. Uh, Terry asked me if I would talk to you about um, money through the lens of worship. That was what he mentioned. He said, "Talk on whatever you want, but if you would talk about this." And, uh, it, <laughs> and uh, yeah, he hasn't done a talk on money for years. And honestly, I, I love talking about giving and generosity. Uh, it's, one of, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. It's, it's like a, a doctor enjoying talking about the cure for cancer. I love talking about generosity as the cure for the greed and consumerism of the California American life in the church. And it's beautiful. I think it's an important and powerful thing to, to talk about what it means for us as followers of Jesus to unlock some of the things that culture tries to lock us into. And so I think that's, I think that's super fun. It's uncomfortable. It's not fun to talk about it because it can really get at some of the things that, uh, that I think we have a tendency to hold on to and maybe even hold on to and claim them to be acceptable. And so it really forces us to evaluate some things, but I think it's really important. So that's where we're going to go. You guys ready for that? Yeah. All right. I don't know what I would have done if you had said no. Um, so we're going to start with the foundation. The foundation of uh, giving generosity through the lens of worship is uh, by looking at Psalm 24. I know this isn't one of the passages I gave you, but Psalm 24 just generally says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Right, that's the foundation of understanding finance. Uh, the Bible talks about money a ton. Uh, I don't know if you've ever taken a crown class or ever heard this before, but the Bible talks about money 2,300 times. It talks about love like 800 times. So just to give you like volume comparison, uh, money is a massive subject in the Bible. And the reason for that is it is uh, throughout history, the main thing that comes in as an idol that grabs a hold of our heart and takes us away from what God has for us 
Uh, a lot of times people talk about money being the root of all evil. That is not what the Bible says. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and that's really the truth. And so for God to speak into uh, our understanding of finances, to speak into our understanding of, of what it means to participate financially with him in his kingdom movement, uh, he is helping us take what could be the root of all kinds of evil and turn it into something powerful and something good. And so that's, that's ultimately what, uh, what we're going to be getting at. But to, to get there, we have to start by thinking about uh, our money, our resources, our time as belonging first to the Lord. They are his, and we are stewards of those things. And that word steward is an important one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So a steward is an individual or a group of people who manage or oversee the property, possessions, or finances of an owner. They have authority to make decisions and spend money and, and take care of business, but good stewards do it in a way that is beneficial and honoring to the owner. So really, it's somebody who says, well, it's not my stuff, but I manage it. I take care of it. I facilitate it. I make sure it gets used properly, invested properly, taken care of properly, so that my owner receives the glory, the benefit, the honor, uh, the gain. It's for that person or that, that entity. So that's how we are to be viewed when it comes to the mysteries of God. That's part of our identity. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. We steward everything that he's given to us in a way that honors him. In Paul's next letter in 2 Corinthians 5.18, he says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So as believers, we're stewards of God's mysteries, his mission, his ministry, ultimately the gospel. And I know this is, we're getting really high up there and far afield of money, but you have to understand that foundation that at, at first we are stewards of the gospel. Like, it's been given to us, this ministry and mission of reconciliation. We've been called to go out into the world as ambassadors, and our number one goal, our primary objective, is to represent Jesus Christ and help reconcile the broken world to the Creator. That's why we still exist. Uh, one time before we started Anthem Church, I remember sitting down to, it wasn't coffee at the time because we didn't drink coffee before we started a church. Uh, so we sat down to maybe breakfast or yogurt or something. I can't remember what it was. Life before coffee. It's hard to even remember that. Um, but we sat down and we were talking about it. And Kristen just asked me this question. She said, isn't it, isn't it strange that when we come to faith in Jesus, we're not instantly sucked up into heaven to be with God forever? And it's like, well, yeah, that is. And it's like, so then we have a reason that God hasn't done that. That it's not immediate. That the moment we say yes to Jesus, we're not then gone from the earth. God has left us here on purpose, not to be miserable, not to try and uh, grind our way through 70 more years until, until we die and go to heaven or until Jesus comes again. There's a purpose for being here, and that is to be image bearers, name carriers of Jesus into this world. So when we think about that and start to understand our lives through that lens, it changes the way we think about money changes the way we think about our time, our energy, our possessions, our homes, all of that is through the lens of Jesus has put me here for a purpose and everything that I have belongs to him. And so I'm now managing his possessions to carry out his purpose while he has left me here on his earth. And if you can get that as, a, as your framework for how to live this life in this world with the kingdom of God as your lens, then it can change a lot about what you can do to make an impact for the kingdom of God. 
If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to go through a parable uh, and spend a little bit of time just seeing the way that Jesus references this idea of stewardship. All right, it's Matthew 25. We're going to do 14 through, I think it goes through 30. And it'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along there. It says this, For it will be uh, like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I love that sentence. And he also, uh, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, uh, Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not going to go into a message on hell at the moment. I apologize for that reference without explanation. But we're going to talk about that parable. How we steward what we've been given matters. It matters because it shows what we actually believe and it demonstrates which kingdom we belong to. Okay, The way that we take what God has entrusted to us. Now you might think, for a moment, you might have the tendency to say, well, I earned this, right? I did the hard work. I went to school. I, uh, I got my degree. I found my job. I did the interview. I make the money, so it's, it's mine. It doesn't belong to the Lord. But if you ever stop for a moment and just thought, man, Lord, why did you choose to have me be born here in the U.S. in the 1980s or 70s or 60s or whatever, whenever you were born, 50, 50s. <laughs> wow, just kidding. Um, you know, you just think about that, and it's, think, it's like, it's strange for me to think about why I wasn't born uh, in Western China, or why I wasn't born in North Africa, or why I wasn't born in whatever place. And to see what God has done to craft the family of my origin, to plant me in the place that he did, to give me the mind that I have, the education that I have, the upbringing that I have, to produce in me all that I can be, it's from him. It's his story. It's his sovereign purpose. He has orchestrated my life to be what it is. It belongs to him. So even if I like to think that it was my elbow grease that got me where I am, there's still so much of the story that you had no control over, that I had no control over, that the Lord had orchestrated long before you ever set set foot into this planet. 
And so then starting to think through that and just saying, okay, Lord, it is, it's yours. I want to manage it well. I want to steward it well. I want to take care of your business well. Paul writes to Timothy, uh, his young apostolic uh, apprentice, and he shares with him what he's supposed to do with the rich of this present age. So this is in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul's writing to Timothy and he's actually instructing him, as you lead churches and plant these churches and put elders in these churches, here's what I want you to do. I want you to instruct the rich on how they should act according to having money and being able to provide for others. If they want to be a part of what is truly life, here's what they can do. Now, before you kind of uh, start wondering in your mind if you qualify as that rich category, I think it's just important. Have anybody ever done globalrichlist.com? Anybody ever gone to that before? All right. That's a fun little website to go and check out, globalrichlist.com. You type in how much you make a year, and it shows you where you rank on the, uh, on the global scale. It's pretty exciting. Uh, just, I'll just show you this. Uh, if you make minimum wage, California minimum wage is ten fifty an hour. Uh, if you do that and work 40 hours, that works out to about $21,000 a year. If you do that, you are in the top 3.2% of the global uh, wealth population. So just to throw that out there, if you make California minimum wage and work 40 hours a week, you're top 3.2%. You qualify as quote unquote rich. So just putting that out there, what Paul was writing to Timothy about was anybody that has beyond simply putting a roof over their heads and food in their mouth. Anybody that has beyond that, those are the ones that he's talking about. People with what would be considered extra, those are the kinds of people that he's talking to. And so he puts this out there and says, I want them to have in their minds and in their hearts a different way of seeing money. Charge them not to be haughty, arrogant about themselves, for themselves, for their own benefit, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't look at that pile of money and say, that's where your hope lies. That's what's going to get you through the day, the week, the month, the year. But instruct them. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves uh, as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So as you look at this idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the abundant life, the true life, the way to live in, a, uh, in this world in a way that has truly set you free, part of it is actually detaching yourself from what money can provide for you and choosing to trust in God instead of in money. And that is why the scriptures talk 2,300 times about money because way too often we find ourselves trusting what money can provide rather than what God can provide. Anybody ever been in a tough situation before and you just start thinking, if only I had a little bit more money, I could get out of this? Yeah, like every day, right? <laughs> here's the problem. Here's the, here's the thing that's pretty funny. Uh, 
I don't think there's a dollar that you, can't, that you can make that this world can't convince you to spend in a new way, right? At every income level, there's something just a little bit out of reach that the world has convinced you that you need. It doesn't matter what you make, you can expand that to the nth degree and there's always something out there that's just a little bit out of reach that you can't get to that you feel like you need. And that's, that's the, honestly, that's the way that the world is gonna work. That's the way that Satan has, has built his kingdom is to keep you from ever feeling fully satisfied and always be striving for the things that are distinctly different from what God has for you. And you just start chasing that, running down that rabbit hole, and you'll find yourself uh, pursuing empty things. So we're going to talk tonight about three things that God says about money in the Bible, and I think they're going to help lead us to a place of understanding giving through the lens of worship. All right? Number one. Worship God versus making money your idol. The first and most prevalent thing in the scriptures is to worship God and not money. If we trust God, we worship God because we know he's worthy of our worship. We can worship without restraint because he's done everything necessary to rescue us from the domain of darkness and place us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He has done what needed to be done, and so we give him our worship. He deserves it. Now, I don't know if I'm talking to a group that debates that, who is worthy of your worship. God is worthy of our worship. That's, that's everything that this church exists for and talks about is to elevate Jesus Christ above all else. But it constantly creeps in, that love, that worship, that affection for something like money. Now, we can worship a lot of other things, but money just happens to be one of the ones that comes up frequently. Now, if we trust God... We start to worship him with our whole life. Romans 12 reminds us of things like this, that our, our whole life is no longer conformed to the world, but it's being transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's our spiritual act of worship to give up our bodies, to give up our lives, to be transformed and renewed. That's an important thing that we understand, that when we say yes to following Jesus, it is a whole life discipleship. Everything is being shaped and changed by Jesus in our lives, and our money is included in that, okay? When you follow Jesus, you cannot then also love and worship money. There's no middle ground. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. We're going through Matthew as a, as a church right now, and this was a, a huge moment for us going through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for he will, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is saying that we can serve and worship God, or we can serve and worship money. If we serve and worship God, money then becomes a tool that we can use to carry out that service and that worship. But if we serve and worship money, then we find ourselves leaving God as a tool to get more money. We use God as a way to ultimately lift up this idol. It goes one way or the other. And so part of what needs to be done is to settle in your hearts. Who do I want to worship? Who's the source of hope? Who's the source of life? Who's the source of my identity? Where does that come from? And when we answer that with the truth, with God is my creator, Jesus is my savior, I am, I am here for him, then we actually have to discipline ourselves to see money in a different light that it is not our ultimate source of hope. So as we go on, that's number one, that we need to worship God and not worship money. Uh, number two says this, we need to be ready to give versus being trapped and enslaved, all right? 
The worship uh, will affect our lives. When we choose to worship God, it actually changes the way that we live. God knows that money will tend to be the thing that robs our worship of him, so he calls us to a different kind of life, a life in which we're ready to give generously and where we are actively training ourselves to live a different way, to live different than the world might call us to live. So here's a great example of this. Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and uh, he wanted, he was on a, uh, did you guys know that Paul went on fundraising trips? Uh, that was his second missionary journey, was a fundraising trip to go and collect money from all the different churches to take back to Jerusalem, because there was a big famine going on in Jerusalem. It's a big deal. It's an awesome thing to study. 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's saying to them, I want you, well, I'll just read it. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. He's like, I want to show up in Corinth and I want to grab the offering that you guys have been diligently socking away so that I can get that quickly to the people in Jerusalem. That's essentially what he's saying there. He writes this letter in advance of him appearing, discipline yourselves. Let's get to work on this. Let's make sure that you are doing the work now so that you can be ready to give when the moment comes. Paul later says that uh, when the time comes to give, it, we want it to be out of generosity, not compulsion or exa exaction. So our giving ought to be regular to train us to be ready for those spontaneous moments. I don't know if you guys have ever had that moment where you just try and think, well, if I give every week in the, in the tithe bucket, then when there's a need, it's not, it's not really my heart. It's just like it's obedience or I don't know. What, I don't know what our, our struggle can be sometimes, but we want to be cheerful givers because it says that in the scripture. We want to actually give out of our, uh, our generosity. But Paul's inviting us to actually make a discipline out of this to train ourselves to give back to the Lord what belongs to him and also to be ready when the moment arises to, be, uh, to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. God wants us to have a life that consists of regular giving and the ability to give when the opportunity arises. So there are a couple of things that you can do to help with this. Number one, avoid debt at all costs. Uh, Proverbs 22.7 says, "'The rich rules over the poor "'and the borrower becomes the lender's slave.'" Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.23 instructs us not to become slaves of men. Romans 13.8 says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Uh, when you go into debt, you put yourself in bondage to somebody else. It actually pinches you into a place where you are uh, limited in your capacity to give. So the Bible continually trains us uh, to try and live free from debt. All right, number two, it means that we live simpler lives to not live above our means. Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. It's really hard for us as Americans to get our minds around this. We love to have plenty. We love to have our things. Uh, it just is a part of our way of life. One of the disciplines as we follow Jesus is actually choosing to live lesser and lesser and lesser, even, even according to what we make, so that we can be more generous. I've gotten a chance over the years to watch um, my sister and brother-in-law. You guys don't know them. I love just talking about them. They, uh, my brother-in-law is a vice president of a pretty good-sized company, and up until two years ago, he drove like a 1997 Toyota Corolla, and he drove that thing to work. He put like, I don't know, 340,000 miles on the thing, and it was kind of ridiculous because you see Darren pulling up to uh, you know, his company. I just, you just picture him in this Corolla. He would go to take clients out to lunch and uh, they would say, uh, who's driving? And Darren would say, I will. And they'll walk out to his car and just <laughs> like, get blown away by this. 
I mention this because, not because, you know, they were frugal for a reason. Um, so over the years, one of the things that they've done is they've socked away money as what they call their rainy day fund, but it's not for their rainy day. They wanted to have money set aside so that anybody in their church that hit a hard time, they wanted to be able to bless them immediately. And so they would choose in, in various ways to live on less so that they could bless at the drop of a hat. And you think about that, and we, a lot of times we like to think of that as the ideal, like, wouldn't it be amazing if I made more money so that I could be generous like that? And that's one way to think about it. But sometimes it comes to actually choosing to live on less and choosing to use what God has already entrusted to you and saying, all right, I want to discipline myself for this so that I can grow in my generosity, so that I can grow in my capacity to give. So we, we don't live above our means. In fact, we choose to live below our means. And so we craft our budget and our finances intentionally and be wise about what we're doing. Now, I'm saying these things, you guys, and these are all things that we're still working on. I mean, we're still trying to figure this stuff out. We are not perfect financially, but it's not about necessarily having it all finished and done and being finished products. I think we all know that we're trying to submit ourselves in increasing measure to the work of Jesus in our lives. So we state what, what can be, and we fight for that, and we work towards that. And so we want to grow in these ways. All right, last thing. I mentioned three things up top. Uh, so let's just quick review here real quick. Number one was worshiping God versus worshiping money. Number two is being ready to give versus being trapped or enslaved. And our last thing that the Bible talks about with money is being content versus being greedy and anxious. All right, so the third thing that God talks about with money is being content with what you already have. Excuse me one second. <coughs> Dodgers. Um, yeah? Yeah, I'll take some of that. Thank you. <coughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, being content. Uh, so Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 13, 5. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The author of Hebrews is putting it out there saying there's a direct connection between your belief in the gospel and your dependence on money. And to be content is an expression of your belief in the gospel. Do you believe that God will never leave you? Jesus said in the Great Commission, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and lo, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Do you trust him for that? Do you believe that to live his way, to choose his avenues in, in life, will be, you, he will meet you in those places, that he is there, that he doesn't leave you, that he doesn't abandon you in those moments. He loves to watch you step out into those faith places, and he enjoys the relationship of you saying, Jesus, you are my Lord and King, and I trust you even more than I trust what money can provide. So contentment is one of the ways that you demonstrate that, saying, I have what I have. I belong to the Lord. He is with me. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
Uh, Richard Halverson, a former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, pointed out something uh, that bothers a lot of people, but it also excites a few. He said, uh, and we talked about a little bit of this, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. It's a great paraphrase of Matthew 6, 21, where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Contentment versus greed or, or anxiety, it's a, it's a measure of your trust in God. Can you be satisfied with what you have? And here's the amazing thing. If you grow to be content and then more money comes your way, you don't need all of a sudden to fill out and suddenly spend all of that extra money. You found yourself content with what you already had. If you find yourself uh, being diligent to trim your expenses so that you can be generous within what you currently make, you find yourself being content with less and less. I don't, I don't need those things. I had the hardest time, you guys, the hardest time. I just bought a car recently, and uh, it was a, I ended up with a Toyota Corolla, and I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. But I mean, the list of cars, you know, when you're thinking about what kind of car you want and you're a 38 year old guy and maybe you're looking down the barrel of 40 and just thinking like, I don't know, I'd love to have something exciting, right? Something kind of cool. I don't need to go off-roading all the time, but it sure would be nice if I ever had the opportunity to be able to do that. I don't know, whatever just comes to your mind. And it was such a battle for me. It was so stupid how silly and ridiculous this battle was for me. But there was part of me that just really wanted to spend money on an exciting car and not go with the wise decision of the Toyota Corolla. <laughs> but wisdom and my wife both kind of won in that space and just, you know, kind of brought, I think, a sense of sensibility to the, to the situation. But it, it's crazy just to see how quickly, when, when that moment comes, that decision-making moment, how, like, the things just draw you away. Have you ever felt that? Just the draw towards something. And part of our role and responsibility as followers of Jesus is in those moments just to say, Jesus, the earth is yours and everything in it. What do you want in this moment? How can I honor you? How can I bless this world through what you've entrusted to me and be wise with what you've given me so that I can continue to be generous in the way that you want? What we do with our, um, with our money, it shows our hearts. It shows what we believe about God. Paul gives us the counter to the content life. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There's thread, there are threads that you can pull on the, on the counter side of giving, of generosity, of faithful stewardship that can actually draw you away from your love of the Lord. They can take what seeds of faith exist and they can smother them with the cares and desires of this world, just like the parable of the, uh, of the seeds or the soils talks about. And so part of, the, part of the choosing on the front end is choosing to be alert and aware of those things that pull on your heart that money can provide and learning how to, how to cut those threads and just say, I'm not gonna go down that path. I'm not going to walk that way and go after the things that the world wants to provide for me. I want to choose to pursue the things of Jesus. 
So the big issue that we, we have to wrestle with is how we see God. What do we feel about him when we look up to his face? What do we think? What do we long for? What do we want to accomplish in this life? When we talk about giving, um, and there are lots of kinds of giving in the scriptures, right? There's giving to support the local church. Uh, it talks about not muzzling an ox. And when you look at, at Terry, you can see where that metaphor comes from, right? He's <laughs> strong as an ox. That's where we were going with that, right? Strong as an ox. Um, you know, the important part of, of your financial support in a church setting like this is honestly to take care of the body of Christ, to be able to provide resources, to free Terry up, to minister and, and encourage, to, to have people on the team that are, that are brought in, that are doing things to build up and equip the saints through, for the work of ministry, to be able to pay the money to rent a space. Those are things that the body contributes to on a regular basis to be able to fund and, and continue the ministry that happens in a church like this. So that's one part of it. Uh, there are many opportunities when things come up to, uh, to be generous, uh, where you have the opportunity to give to support other brothers and sisters in need. There's giving to support church plants. We see that all throughout the scriptures. There's lots of different kinds of giving in the scriptures. So here's where I want to talk about giving as worship, and this is kind of where we're going to close. When you choose to, um, to give your money, sorry, let me think about where I'm going to wrap this up. Love the sound of the kids in the background. That's beautiful. I, I don't know you. I don't know if you've decided to give your life to Jesus. But when you do it, it comes with a life that follows that. To give your resources as an act of worship is to express your trust and your faith in him. See, worship goes way beyond singing songs. We love to sing songs. It's an expression of our heart. Uh, there's even a, a, a song that talks about, um, it's your breath in my lungs, so I pour out my praise. Have you guys ever sang that song? Like, just even thinking about that, like, the air is yours, and it's used to create song. Your resources, these are yours, and they're used to actually create blessing, to to move churches forward, to move mission forward, to rescue kids out of slavery, to do great things around the world. When we start to see the opportunity for that money, it can become this incredible act of worship to say, Jesus, this belongs to you. I want you, I want you to be this role in my life, to be my king. I wanna declare that you are my king and that I belong to you. And so we give. Now, you guys notice I haven't talked about volume at all. I haven't talked about a tithe. I haven't talked about how much money to give or uh, the legal side of what you owe the church because, honestly, we don't, even, we don't really frame it that way. There's no, there's no designation of that in the New Testament. The tithe means tenth. The Old Testament, it was your first fruits, it, the tenth. You take the first tenth of what you harvest and you bring that and give it and lay it at the feet of the Lord. And that's been traditionally something that for a long time, Israel occupied the tithe. And then the church came along. And Jesus talked about how everything, everything is at, at the feet of Jesus, right? Everything belongs to him. But we don't give everything. We don't, we don't pour it all out. So what do we do with that? There's no... Well, I didn't. Do you teach a tithe? I do. You do? No, I teach more than a tithe. You teach more than a tithe? When I do teach a tithe. Like 11, 12%? Or, yeah, yeah. When I do teach a tithe, I teach 
when you do teach on it, every eight to 10 to 15 to 35 years. Yeah, yeah. I here's the thing. We don't prescribe. I get to go for it? You give me freedom? All right. You know your life and your financial situation. You know what you make. You know what you have. You know what God has provided for you. I believe that part of your role is to bring Jesus into how you handle your finances. Do you pray over your money? Do you pray over your budget? Do you see what what God has provided for you and say, Lord, what can I provide? What can I give? Do you look at ways that you can trim back specifically so that you can give more? These are opportunities that I I encourage people to look at as opposed to just finding some line and living off of that. Maybe that's, honestly, that's a great discipline. It's a great place to start is just to say, all right, well, this year I can't just jump straight to 10%, but we're going to go two and we're going to go three and then we're going to go five and then we're going to go 10 or whatever it is. Try and discipline yourself to living on less so that you can give more. But it's got to be a part of the conversation. It's got to be a part of what you do. Kristen and I were talking on the way in, and one of the things that she said, and I thought this was awesome, she heard this from another guy that teaches to us named DJ, that whatever the actual number is, the scripture is consistent that it's our first fruits, that it's the first thing that comes out. That we don't pay all of our bills, that we don't do all of our work, that we don't take care of everything else, and then whatever's left over, that's what we're going to give to God. It's the opposite, that we start with what we're going to give to God, and then we live off of everything else. And so even if our posture is just flipping that all the way around and starting and saying, Lord, I want to I give to you first, what can we do? Let's start working on this. Let's start growing this because I, I want my trust in you to increase. And the last thing I'll say is I think for us as we, as we wrap up, the idea of growth is an important statement, important posture in our pursuit of Jesus. And we want our generosity and our giving to be growing throughout our lives. So here's what I can do this year, and I want to grow that next year. And here's what I can do next year, and I want to grow that the year after that, that our, that our generosity and our contentment and our pursuit of the things of Jesus are in increasing measure, that they are growing, and that his ownership of our heart is increasing. And we're going to always be submitting ourselves to that. So my invitation to you guys tonight as giving the first money message in eight years in Mercytown is to start by being intentional about bringing Jesus into the conversation of what you do with your money. Start there. And if it feels silly to pull your bank uh, statement and pray over your money, if it feels silly to pull your paycheck stub, I know most of us get paid direct deposit these days, but to you know, pull up the email that says your, your pay stub and pray over that email, if it feels silly to do th- those things, it doesn't need to be silly. It's part of being intentional. And we want to do life on purpose, right? We're talking about disciplines. You guys have been working through a lot of things about being formed by Jesus to live his way. We want to do things on purpose, and we need to do our money on purpose. I hope this has been helpful, you guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up, but I, I hope it's been a useful time to just go through money and life and giving, even as an act of worship as a part of how we do things. So I'd love to pray for us, and then I'll hand it over to Terry. All right. Uh, Jesus, thank you for um, what you provide for us. Your gospel speaks of uh, your finished work, that we are fully satisfied in you, that we get to live this life not trying to earn approval, not trying to earn salvation, not trying to earn uh, heaven credit, but that you have lavished us fully and completely with your grace. You say that your inheritance is ours already, 
before we do a single good thing or give a single dollar, we have the fullness of what you have for us already. You are generous. You are the picture of generosity. And Lord, we want to grow to become more like you. Jesus, we want our lives to increasingly reflect your way and your heart in this world. So I pray for Mercy Town, Lord. I pray for uh, the, the grip that money has on, on many of us, the, the solution to the problems that it so often becomes, Lord. I pray that you would grow our faith to press into you and to release money, to worship you and to choose not specifically not to worship money. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.